Uh, You can take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Job. We uh, we're a little bit past the halfway point now in our series through the book of Job, and uh, there's been a there's been a I I guess you can start in uh, chapter 29. Um, you can turn there. There's been a, a number of, of, of uh, messages where we've covered larger uh, real estate, uh, large, larger portions of Scripture in the, uh, in the book of Job, and, and we haven't done a, a particular Scripture reading like we normally do before sermons. Uh, this is going to be another case, again, where we're going to be flipping around to several uh, particular Scriptures, uh, starting in chapter uh, 29. And uh, instead of just doing a, a one particular scripture reading, let's go ahead and pray that God will help us this morning uh, to receive his word, and then we will jump right in uh, back into the book of Job. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning, remind us that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Help us to approach this book, approach these words as revelation to us from you. Uh, let us not approach this book like any other book, like the newspaper or like some magazine or some fiction novel. This is direct communication from you. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to approach it with the, the kind of, of uh, eager anticipation and reverence that we should. You speak. Help us to listen. And, Father, help me, help me to communicate your word to my friends here this morning. Deemer Webb's word is not important. Your word is. And I pray that you would help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we're continuing our sermon series through the book of Job. I've entitled the series, Out of the Whirlwind. And certainly, a whirlwind of calamity has fallen on Job. Job was a good man. Job was a righteous man, a God follower, a God fearer. And we've read that God has allowed Satan to afflict Job. And so, uh, in chapters 1 and 2, we've seen uh, how Satan has afflicted Job by destroying his wealth and his children and his health. And Satan believes, hopes that Job will curse God and abandon God if the suffering is intense enough. Satan wants to discredit Job's faith, and more than that, Satan wants to discredit God's worth and belittle God's glory. And stunningly, Job doesn't curse God. In fact, we have seen in Job an intense longing uh, in him to be in right relationship with God because Job feels like his suffering is a sign that God is actually against him. That the trials that have come upon him are a sign of God's disfavor. That's what Job's three friends think who have come to comfort Job. A few sermons ago, we were introduced to Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, who have at the heart of their theology a form of retributive justice that says if you sin, you suffer soon and in this life. If you are good then good things will happen. And therefore, they conclude that Job must have been in rebellion against God, like in big rebellion against God. And so, God is punishing Job big time for his evil. And if Job doesn't get it together and repent, God's going to destroy Job altogether. These friends we've seen are are cruel to Job. They are 
heartless and insensitive, and not only that, they're just they're very wrong. And Job knows they're wrong. And, and so as, as you read through the book of Job, you see him declare his innocence over and over again. But we also see that in his constant uh, declarations of innocence, that in his pain and confusion, Job begins to cross the line. He begins to, I think, overstate his own righteousness, and he begins to question the righteousness of God. He begins to say some very sharp things to God, against God. For example, in Job 10.3, he says, does it please you, God? Does it please you to oppress me, to spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the schemes of the wicked? Or he says in Job 19, though I cry I've been wronged, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. And Job's questioning increases in intensity. And so when you get to Job chapter 29, you get to his final defense. And he begins to give a long list of his good deeds. I'm not going to read the whole thing here. You can read it on your own time. Job 29 through 31 is his final defense. But just for example, in verse 12 in chapter 29, he says, I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had no one to help him. In other words, Job was a man who helped those in need. And more than that, Job defended the poor against the oppressor. Look at verse 17. He says, I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. Turn over to chapter 30. And uh, down in verse 24, Job said, Yet does not one in a heap of ruins stretch out his hand and in his Disaster cry out for help. Did not I weep for him whose day was hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? Now, this is particularly powerful what Job is saying. He's saying, listen, I, in the past, I heard the cries of the needy. And didn't I weep for them? Didn't I reach out to help them, God? Didn't I grieve for them? And the implication is that I did that for the poor and needy, God. But you aren't doing that for me. I was good to the needy, but you aren't good to me in my need. That is a very serious accusation. And Job is beginning to make himself look better than God. And then you turn over to chapter 31. Chapter 31, Job talks about his sexual purity. He says, uh, in verse 1, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What would my portion be? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does he not see my ways and number all my steps? There seems to be here an expectation that such calamity should not fall on Job because God has seen how good he has been. Now, Job doesn't curse God or abandon God like. Satan wants him to do, but man, he is coming dangerously close, isn't he? As he begins to accuse God of injustice, of doing him wrong, of being unfair and arbitrary and treating Job like an enemy. And you know, uh, folks, it's stuff like that that makes the book of Job so uncomfortable to read. 
Book of Job is not a book that is neat and tidy with everything wrapped up in a bow where it's all easy to understand. Uh, you know, we see Job at the beginning and at the end of the book commended by God. We see him declared to be a godly man, perhaps one of the godliest men of all time, and yet we see all kinds of awful things about God come out of Job's mouth. And so the question is, which is it? Is Job righteous or is Job a sinner? And the answer is yes. Job is a righteous sinner, and I don't think Job's friends have a category for that. Turn to chapter 32 now, where we are introduced to a new character in the drama. A young man named Elihu comes on the scene. And Elihu looks at the three friends on one side, and he looks at Job on the other side and says, you're both wrong. And Elihu immediately begins to distance himself from the hollow, bad arguments of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Look at verse 6. And Elihu said, I am young in years, and you are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. See, Elihu, as a young man, had great respect for his elders. He kept silent during the nearly 30 chapters of arguing between Job and the three friends. He's just kind of standing there, just watching this whole drama unfold, and he was expecting great wisdom to flow from the lips of the three friends, from these old guys. Look at verse 7. I said... Let days speak, and many years teach wisdom. In the beginning, he's ready to hear what these old guys have to say and provide some helpful answers to Job. But these three friends end up not uh, being very impressive at all. And Job successfully withstands and defeats all of their arguments. And so, Elihu continues in verse 8. But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It's not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me. So, Elihu is saying, it's the breath of the Almighty, the Spirit of God, that makes a man understand. Not simply being old. And though Elihu is young in years, he is claiming divine inspiration for what he's about to say. Elihu claims to be a spokesman for God himself. And I I think he really is. Now, I'll be upfront with you, full disclosure here, commentators don't know what to do with Elihu. If you start opening up the books and you start studying and seeing what other people have to say, folks are all over the map. They don't know how to handle this guy. And, and you'll read some folks who, uh, who are just really down on Elihu. This guy is awful, he's arrogant, and he really, he's just saying exactly what the three friends are saying. And then you've got other guys like, no, 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 that's not the case. Actually, Elihu has something different to say. He actually advances the arguments. Now, I've, I've got a number of reasons why I think better of Elihu. Don't have time to go into them all this morning. I, I think one of the most compelling pieces of evidence, though, for this is in chapter 42 at the end of the book. There, God says his wrath is kindled against Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar because of what they said. But he does not rebuke Elihu. And it seems odd that God would discredit the three friends, but lets Elihu's words stand especially if he's a false prophet wrongly attributing his words to God. 
Now, I'll let you read and study on your own. You can do all the homework on your own, and you can come to your own conclusions about Elihu. But I think Elihu has very helpful things to say. I think Elihu is is kind of like a a John the Baptist figure who is preparing the way for the Lord who's going to come to Job in chapter 38. Job's friends have failed to answer Job's concerns. Now we get to the point where some answers begin. Elihu begins answers, and the Lord is going to complete them. And we'll see that what Elihu says will dovetail quite nicely with what God says in a couple of weeks. So Elihu further distances himself from the false teachings of of the three friends in, in verse 14 of chapter 32. Look what he says to them. He, Job, has not directed his words against me, and I will not answer him with your speeches. I'm not going to give him more of your garbage, of your bad theology. I've got something different to say. One of the main differences between Elihu and the three friends, watch this now. One of the main differences is that the three friends say that Job is suffering because he had sinned. Elihu is going to say that Job has sinned because he is suffering. And there's a big difference between those two. Once again, the three friends say that Job is suffering because he had sinned. Elihu says that Job is sinning because he is suffering. Elihu does not think that some prior willful sin has brought on Job's suffering, like some sort of retributive payback for evil committed. And we'll see in a little bit, Elihu disagrees with the friends, uh, that the friends think that, that Job is not righteous. Elihu disagrees with that. So, contrary to the three friends, Elihu's contention is that Job, though he's a righteous man, there is... A sediment of imperfection that is at the bottom of the beaker of his life. Like a beaker of of clear water. It looks good, looks pure, with a, a thin layer of contamination on the bottom. And when that beaker, when Job's life gets jostled enough by his suffering, and when he is battered and shaken up by these three cruel friends, what happens? That sediment of sin, of pride at the bottom of the beaker of his life is exposed and rises to the surface, contaminating Job's apparent purity, and some inappropriate things come out of his mouth for which Job, in chapter 42, ends up repenting of. The water in the beaker looked clear and clean, But the shaking and the jostling is exposing filth that was previously unseen. And in the person of Job, we see that it is possible for a believer to have a clear conscience and to walk in daily repentance of known sin while still having sin in his heart. Job was the godliest man in the land, and yet Job's suffering 
which has shaken and stirred his heart, has brought to light residue of pride and self-righteousness in him that was not clearly seen when things were going well. And now that it's out in the open, it's not pretty. Hence, the very ugly things that comes out of Job's mouth against God. Look at, look at going back to chapter 32, look at verse 2. Then Elihu burned with anger at Job. Why? Because he justified himself rather than God. In other words, Job, in his attempts to make a case for his own righteousness, is overstating his own righteousness at the expense of God's righteousness. Now, let's be careful here. It's not that Job's speeches are full of empty braggadocio. It's not, it's not just a huffy bravado. It, it, you read Job's uh, speeches in, in chapter 29 through uh, 31. Job's not making stuff up. He really has been a decent man. He really has been helping the poor. He really has been striving for sexual purity. He, he's, not, he's not some sort of uh, um, a hypocrite like the Pharisees that we meet in the Gospels who, who act good but, but, uh, but, but really are, are cherishing sin in their, in, in their hearts. They're fake. Job's not a fake. Job really was living righteously. And he's right in that. But Job, in making his own case, makes God look bad, makes God look capricious, unjust, uncaring. Job is more interested in vindicating himself than vindicating God and upholding God's righteousness and goodness. That's where he's crossing the line. And you may think, well, I can't believe Job would do something like that. Come on. We can fall into this too. Sometimes our pain gets so bad that we do question whether God is so good. This is not just Job's issue, it's our issue. We, we do this. We can exalt ourselves and, in, and, and exalt our own goodness by using God as a step stool, and he is being put down as we are being lifted up. Turn over to chapter 33, as Elihu begins to share his specific concerns about Job. And let's start at verse 8. This is Elihu talking to Job. Surely you have spoken in my ears, and I have heard the sound of your words. You say, I am pure without transgression. I'm clean, and there's no iniquity in me. Behold, he, God, finds occasion against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Okay, Elihu's quoting Job's sentiments here. And then look at Elihu's conclusion. Verse 12, behold, in this you are not right. You're wrong, Job. You've gone too far. You've jumped to the wrong conclusion. You say your suffering is evidence that God is unfairly against you and is your enemy, but you're not right. One of Job's complaints is that God is ignoring his pleas. Job desires to hear from God. Job wants answers to his questions. Job feels like his prayers are bouncing off the ceiling and heaven is silent. Turn, turn back to, to, uh, to chapter 31, and you'll, you'll see a glimpse of this. Verse 
35. This is Job talking. Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. He said, I'm talking to you, God. Why won't you speak back to me? And notice that word adversary there. He feels like God is an adversary to him as an enemy. Of course, a few weeks ago, we talked about who the real enemy was. Go back to chapter 33 and look at Elihu's answer to Job. Verse 13. Why do you contend against him, saying, He will answer none of man's words? For God speaks in one way and in two, though man does not perceive it. In other words, Job, uh, God actually does speak. And he speaks in different ways. But often we don't hear his voice. We aren't paying attention to it. And so we conclude that God isn't saying anything. Now, what are some of the ways that God speaks? One way is through the voice of conscience. Look at verse 15. In a dream, in a vision of the night... When deep sleep falls on men while they slumber on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings. Warnings about what? Warnings about that residue of sin that lies even in the hearts of the godliest of men. And why does God do this? Why does God speak through the voice of conscience? Verse 16 says, to open their ears. And then look at verse 17. That he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from man. In other words, to get pride far away from man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. In other words, God's purpose is not punishment, but protection. To protect man from succumbing to that pride that's welling up in them. To keep back his soul from the pit. What's happening here is not judgment like the three friends think, but protection from judgment. He keeps back his soul from the pit. We have here not a punishing God, but a saving God. Guarding man from pride. There's another way that God can can speak to protect us. And this is what Elihu wants to emphasize in particular to Job, is that God speaks through pain. Look at verse 19. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen stick out. His soul draws near the pit and his life to those who bring death. Uh, so here you've got a vivid description of physical suffering. This seems to really describe exactly what Job is going through. You can imagine his bones just sticking out from his flesh. looks like a skeleton. The key word here is in verse 19. The word rebuked. Man is also rebuked. Job claims God is silent. In all all the pain. That the pain is evidence that God is ignoring him. But Elihu corrects that notion. And says that God actually speaks to us through pain. The suffering is a word to the sufferer from God. C.S. Lewis wisely said that God whispers to us in our pleasures. But shouts in our pains. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And isn't that true in in all of our lives? When things are going well, 
when, when we do well, when we're comfortable, it doesn't seem so hard to, to love others or to handle conflict. But if I'm going through pain, now I'm speaking from personal experience here. If I'm going through pain, suddenly I'm not as nice to my wife. I blow up at the kids. I know none of you do that. But I've struggled with that. I'm more prone to gluttony and laziness. I may even say things about God that I shouldn't say. And the pain that I'm going through seems to stir up my heart and those sediments of sin rise to the surface and God graciously speaks to me through that. He shows me that there's stuff going on in here that I would not have known about otherwise if I had remained comfortable. I'm not saying that's always the case with pain and suffering, but this is one way that God can use that in our lives. But regardless, the purpose of the pain that God allows His people to go through is never retributive. It's never punishment for sin, like Job's three friends are insisting. God always has a positive and redemptive purpose in the pain of His children. Turn with me over to chapter 36. In chapter 36, we get further insight into Elihu's view of suffering that distinguishes him from the three friends. And the helpful thing about these verses is that Elihu makes it very, very clear that there is, a such, a thing, there is such a thing as a righteous person who still has sin in their life that needs to be revealed and rooted out. There is such a thing as a righteous sinner. And again, that's something the three friends can't seem to get their head around. They don't get that. So in chapter 36, Elihu looks at two groups of people, the wicked and the righteous. And in verse 6, he says, He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their right. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on on the throne, he sets them forever, and they are exalted. Now, if, if he stopped right there, he would sound exactly like Job's three friends. The wicked suffer, the righteous prosper, period. And of course, that's true in the long run. We've talked about that before. But what Job is struggling with is why the righteous suffer in the short run. Look at verse 8. Here's what, where Elihu begins to really separate himself from the theology of the three friends. Look what he says. And if they are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction... Wait a minute. That's different. That, that's different than the theology of the three friends... Because the three friends say, if you are afflicted, that means you're not righteous. But Elihu here is describing people who are righteous, and yet they are caught in the cords of affliction. And what does God do in the midst of the affliction of the righteous? He speaks. Verse 9. Then he declares to them their work and their transgressions, that they are behaving arrogantly. He opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from iniquity. So the righteous are not sinlessly perfect. There there is residue of that old nature left even in the godly. And sometimes, especially during times of intense suffering and, and difficulty, that old nature of pride breaks out. And actual sinful behavior. That's 
that is exactly what happened when Job accused God of being his enemy, of being unjust, of being wrong. He's accusing God of being wrong. And that is why Job repents at the end of the book. Spoiler alert. Job repents at the end of the book, if you haven't read it. But he's not repenting of sin prior to his suffering, but sins during his suffering. So again, let's not miss this. Right? Let's not miss that. It's on the screen there. Three friends say that Job is wicked and suffering because he has sinned. Elihu saying, no, Job is a righteous man who is sinning because he is suffering. A lot of nuance in the book of Job. If you can't handle nuance, you're going to have a tough time slogging through the book of Job. It's not as, as neat and tidy as we want it to be. And you've got to look and read very, very carefully. And even when you do, it still is challenging. It's complex. But as Pastor Steve said earlier this morning, I was talking with him, people are complex. That's true. And Job is complex. Not just the book, but the person. And Elihu's point in all of this is that the affliction of the righteous makes a righteous person sensitive to that remaining sin in his heart. And if you read on, we don't have time right now, but if you read on, he talks about the response of the righteous to affliction and the response of the wicked to affliction, and it's different. And with the righteous, they will listen. They will have ears to hear. And in Job's life, proof of that, chapter 42, he repents. They will have ears to hear. That's what Elihu means when he says in verse 10 that suffering opens the ear of the righteous. I'm reminded of uh, Psalm 119, verse 67. The psalmist says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. There's something about affliction that is corrective to our hearts. There are dimensions of godliness that the righteous can only learn through affliction. One preacher aptly noted that what distinguishes Elihu from Job's three friends is that the suffering of the righteous is not the fire of destruction, but the fire that refines the gold of their goodness. For the righteous, it is not punitive, but curative. Let's turn back over to chapter 33. Elihu is describing to us a saving and redemptive God. The suffering of the righteous is not payback for past sins. Instead, the suffering serves as God's megaphone, putting the spotlight on that residue of sin at the bottom of the beaker that, if not dealt with, will break out into future sin and consume Job and ruin him. God is not Job's enemy. Sin is. And suffering is one means God uses to protect his children from being entangled by it. When we read Elihu's words in the context of the whole Bible, we also discover that God delivers us from sin not ultimately, from, uh, not ultimately through our own suffering, but through the suffering of another. We have seen in chapter 33 that when God speaks to us through the voice of conscience... That voice is followed by the gracious purpose of God to rescue, to to conceal pride from man. And so it is the same when God speaks through the voice of suffering. And how does that rescue happen? 
It happens through somebody that Job has longed for over and over and over again. It happens through a mediator. Look at verse 23. Again, we're in chapter 33. Chapter 33, verse 23. This is Elihu. He's just talked about how God speaks to man through suffering. And look what he says. If there be for him an angel, angel means here a messenger from God, a mediator, one of the thousand, or one out of a thousand to emphasize his uniqueness, his rarity. And what's the role of this mediator? Look, end of of verse 23. To declare to man what is right for him. In other words, to show him the right way. And what's the result of this mediation? Verse 24. And he, the mediator, is merciful to him and says, Deliver him from going down into the pit. I have found a ransom. So this mediator speaks up for the sufferer in the court of heaven giving word that this person should be saved, should be rescued, should be delivered from the pit. Why? Into verse 24. I have found a ransom. A ransom has been found for man to save him from danger. Now, this is important. Elihu is onto something big. What all men need is a mediator, a ransom for sin. Even a man like Job, the godliest man in the world, needs this. Because nobody is sinless. And though he did not walk in willful, known disobedience and rebellion prior to his suffering, his present suffering is exposing the sediment of sin that was at the bottom of the beaker, and even Job cannot be right with God based on his own righteousness. And I think that's one of the problems of Job here, he becomes overconfident in his own righteousness. He wants a mediator. He wants a defense attorney. He wants an advocate to represent him in God's heavenly court, and he wants the lawyer to open up the briefcase and show God all of this proof of Job's personal holiness as the reason he should be accepted by God. Again, Chapter 32, verse 1, so these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Or 32, verse 2, then Elihu burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. Now, again, here here comes the complexity and nuance of the book of Job. Job, in one sense, was righteous. He he had faith in God. He He is commended by God in the very first chapter. Because of his righteousness. But on the other hand, in his pain and suffering, Job has gone too far. He's gotten to the point where he in his pride thinks he is in the right and God is in the wrong. And if he would just have a mediator in court to stand between him and God, he'd win his case based on his own righteousness. Now, Elihu agrees that Job needs a mediator. But... Not to prove that Job should be accepted by God based on Job's righteousness. Instead, Job needs a mediator to pay a ransom for Job's sin. Verse 24. Again, uh, this is chapter 33, verse 24. And he, the mediator, is merciful to him and says, Deliver him from going down into the pit. Why? I found a ransom. Now, we're still in chapter 33. Look at verse 26. Then man prays to God. And he, God, accepts him. 
He sees his face with a shout of joy and he restores to man his righteousness. So why is man accepted? Is man accepted through his own goodness? No. He's accepted because the mediator has paid a ransom for the sinner. Verse 27. He sings before men and says, I sinned and perverted what was right and it was not repaid to me. Now that is way different from the theology of Job's three friends. I hope you caught that. I sinned and perverted what was right, and it wasn't repaid me. Way different. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar's system of retributive justice says that you sin and you will always be repaid, and soon. But Elihu here is introducing a concept that the three friends have no clue about. A sinner who is accepted by God. A sinner who doesn't receive payback for his sins, who does not receive what he deserves, whose life does not go down into the pit of destruction and judgment. Why? Not because the sinner got it together and started doing good deeds, but because a ransom has been paid for his life. And Job still needs to learn that he cannot depend on his own righteousness to win his case with God. Because the sediment of sin in his life is enough to condemn him if he chooses to stand before God without a ransom-paying, substitutionary mediator. Again, verse 33, or chapter 33, verse 28. He has redeemed my soul. There's that redemption, ransom language again. He's redeemed my soul from going down into the pit, and my life shall look upon the light. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring his soul back from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. So Elihu, again, is painting a much different picture of God and Job than the three friends have been painting. According to Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, the suffering of Job's is functioning as God's sword of execution to bring vengeance upon Job for the evil that he has done. But according to Elihu, the suffering is not the executioner's whip to destroy. It's more like the surgeon's scalpel to save. Both cause pain, right? But the result is totally different. The three friends see God as an angry and vindictive judge. Elihu sees God as a redeemer. A rescuer, a loving doctor, where the affliction sensitizes man to his need and drives him to bank his hope on the ransom payer and not on himself. And you might say, Deemer, now, earlier in this series, you suggested that this affliction is from Satan to drive Job away from God. Now you're saying that all of these things are happening due to particular purposes that God has. So which is it? Does Satan have a design in this suffering, or does God? The answer is yes. I love questions like that. The answer to the affirmative for both of them. Again, let's forget, let's not forget why Satan is able to afflict Job in the first place. The only reason why Satan can bring this devastation into Job's life is because, because God decreed that it would happen. God allowed it to happen. He gave the devil permission to wreak havoc in Job's life. But just as the devil has a purpose for Job's affliction, God has a purpose, and those purposes are diametrically opposed to one another. What the devil means for evil in Job's life, God means for good in Job's life. 
And God's purposes always overrule whatever design the devil wants to accomplish. Many examples of this all throughout the scriptures. You know the story of Joseph and his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. But here's another one. Uh, go to, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 for a very good example as we consider the apostle Paul. Paul was a good man, a righteous man who loved God. And yet Paul was afflicted and tormented by Satan. Why? Because he sinned and God was paying him back? No. Paul, Paul himself writes about this in hindsight in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. Listen to what Paul says about his own suffering. So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. In other words... Revelations he was receiving from God put Paul in danger of Paul getting a big head. To keep me from becoming conceited, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now, Satan is clearly involved in this affliction. And Satan, who is always malevolent in his purposes, surely wants to beat down, discourage, and ruin Paul. But God, on the other hand, has a different design in Paul's affliction. And the design is for holiness. It's to protect Paul from becoming conceited. It reminds me a lot of what Elihu has been saying, that that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from man. And if Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar were living in Paul's day, they would point accusing fingers at Paul, wouldn't they? And say, well, obviously, Paul, God is paying you back for some some heinous sins that you've committed. That's not the case. Paul's not being punished for past sins. He's being protected from future sins. There was in Paul's life some sort of sediment of sinful pride, and Paul was vulnerable to that because of all the great things that Paul, God was doing in Paul's life, and God ordains this affliction. Why? Because he's mean? No, to nip, it, to nip that pride in the bud and protect Paul from destroying his life and his ministry due to pride. What Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. God uses suffering in the lives of his children for good purposes in their lives Every time. Never for evil purposes. Well, I, but I don't understand. I don't understand why. I, I, I know. I don't understand it either. There's only one thing you need to understand. That if you belong to God, if you are his child, that God is a God who is for you and not against you. I promise you that. And one good purpose that God sometimes uses or or aims for in pain may be to speak something into our ears through that pain that we were unable to hear in our prosperity. Therefore, in our sufferings, we would do well to have attentive ears and an open heart and alert eyes for previously unknown sin in our hearts. Let's be on guard for that. If you're going through suffering right now, be on guard for that. Watch that. Ask God to help you to to, to see if there's anything there that needs to be dealt with. 
And if that happens, if we do begin to see some sediment rise up, we should not be discouraged by the exposure of that sin, but should recognize that God is being gracious to us. That he's, he's wanting to help us to kill those things in our lives that would choke us and destroy us. I'll give you a few scriptures that speak to this. There, there are many more. Hebrews 12, God disciplines us for our good that we may, why? We may share in his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. A lot of times we, when we think of discipline, we think of it as I did something wrong and then boom, I get discipline. But there, there's another aspect of discipline as well that, that, is, that is preventative, that is that, that, that helps to correct us before the mistakes are, are made. And I think that's what was happening in that example with Paul. I think that's some of what's going on with Job. How about this one? This is again Paul in 2 Corinthians 1, talking about a very painful experience of affliction. We were so utterly, unbearably crushed that we despaired of life itself. Why? We felt that we had received the sentence of death. Now, why were they crushed? The parentheses, that's, that's me, that's not the word of God. Parentheses. Why were they crushed? Why would God allow them to endure such affliction? He says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. This affliction that they were going through, God had a design in it to help them to root out self-sufficiency and sinful self-reliance in their lives. One more. You're all familiar with this one, James 1. Therefore, count it all joy, my brethren, when you meet various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We can have joy in trials, not because we are sadists and we love the pain. We can have joy in trials because we know that the pain is not meaningless and that God is working something good in those things in the lives of his children. And, and, and by the way, there's nothing in those scriptures I just flashed on the screen. There's nothing in those scriptures about being punished for sin. But when hard times come, it's tempting to think that we are paying for past sins. But guess what? If you're a child of God, you need to recognize that your sins have already been paid for. There, there's no double jeopardy. You're not suffering to atone for your sins because somebody else has already suffered in that way for your sins. Praise God. The three friends of Job, they had room for the justice of God, but they did not have room in their theology for the grace of God. A grace that puts our sins onto a substitute, and those sins are paid for in that substitute. Now, the book of Job is in the Old Testament times, I know, and so it's hard to know how much specifics Elihu knew about God's ultimate redemptive purposes in Christ. But, but man, speaking under the inspiration of the Spirit, he, he knew something. He was on to something. This guy's got gospel coming out of his mouth. Elihu tells us that there's a mediator. He tells us that there's a ransom that needs to be paid. He tells us that, that, uh, that there's, a, uh, there's a ransom that delivers men from the pit. And you and me and Job and everyone is accepted by God, not through our own righteousness, but because of the ransom that the mediator paid. And we know that because it is man who has sinned, then it is man who must pay man's ransom. 
But at the same time, this man must be more than a man. Psalm 49 says, truly no man can ransom another. The mediator, the ransom payer, must be man, but he cannot be merely man because mere man has their, their own sins to pay for. They can't help anybody else. He must be a man, but he must be more than a man. And thousands of years after Job, what Elihu saw in part finally came in the person of Christ. A man that is more than a man. And what does Jesus say about himself? Pastor Steve read it earlier. For the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve. And give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the ultimate proof that indeed the righteous do suffer. That the righteous are indeed afflicted. What would Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar said about Jesus? Seeing Jesus beaten and bloodied and bruised and battered and hanging naked on the cross. They would have said, well, obviously Jesus must have been some great sinner for him to be afflicted in that way. And because the three friends of Job have no category for a righteous person who is so afflicted, they have no category for an innocent ransom payer. And if you have no innocent ransom payer, you have no salvation. If you stand before God, trusting in your own righteousness, you will be condemned. But if you stand before God, trusting in the righteousness of the one who was condemned in your place, you will be saved. And you will have the assurance that whatever suffering God allows into your life is not to destroy you, but to make you more like him. Elihu hasn't given all the answers to all the questions that Job has, but it's a start. And it's not the biggest takeaway, though, in the book of Job. It's not the biggest lesson. That's coming, but we're still a few sermons away from that. But Elihu's setting things up for us quite nicely. And next week, we're going to take one final look at what Elihu has to say. He's going to continue to bring us some helpful answers, and more importantly, Elihu is preparing us for the arrival of the most important character in the book of Job, which is God himself. He's preparing the stage for God, who's going to arrive and he's going to reveal what Job and what we need the most in our suffering. Let's pray. Father, thank you our ransom has been paid. Because if we had to pay for it ourselves, we would pay for it forever in hell. And yet you loved your people so much that you sent Jesus to pay that ransom himself on the cross. What a great God. What a merciful God. And how dare we be thankless. How dare we not be grateful. Oh, Father, would you help us to grow in our appreciation of what you've really done for us. And as our appreciation grows, let our joy grow. Let our reliance on the grace of God grow. Let our love for you grow. And let our desire to tell others about the ransom payer grow as well. Let's not keep this great truth to ourselves. Let's not keep this a secret that a ransom has been paid. Thank you, Father, for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.